Today we are in the middle of our series on more than a story, and today we probably hit what is one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible, which is the story of David and Goliath. It comes from 1 Samuel chapter 17. If you've got a Bible with you, we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 17 here in just a minute. Uh, it's a famous story because people love to turn stories from the Bible into kind of a, into a simplistic fable or fairy tale. And David killing the giant seems like to our culture a sweet fairy tale where somebody small meets somebody big and the small guy wins. And so our culture that loves underdog stories, loves the story of David and Goliath. And even churches get caught up in this idea that the story is about somebody small beating somebody big. But as Christians, when we read this story, we understand that this story is not about somebody small beating somebody big. This is not about David beating Goliath. This is about God defeating Goliath. And so it is not actually an underdog story. There is no story in your Bible where God is the underdog. There is no story in your Bible where God is fretting and nervous and anxious and thinking, wow, how are we going to get through this? That's not your God. God is not looking at any problems in your life and thinking these are insurmountable. How can we possibly defeat this giant? We're so small. God is not looking at anything on earth and thinking, I can't handle this. And the story of David and Goliath is about an enormous God, an all-powerful God who cares about humanity enough to teach them some things and can use any means necessary he wants to do whatever he wills for the sake of his plan. And so the story of David and Goliath is not an underdog story about a little David and a big Goliath. It's a story of a giant God who's happy to enter into small problems that we face. And if you don't understand the context of 1 Samuel 17, then the whole story kind of falls apart. 1 Samuel 17 is the story of David and Goliath. I'm going to get there in a second. But if all we do is tell the story of David and Goliath, you miss a lot of what's happening in that story. In fact, if you were in men's or women's Bible study a couple years ago when we did 1 and 2 Samuel, then you've walked through each chapter already. I'm just going to summarize for you the 16 chapters that lead up to David and Goliath, which are important. First, it starts with a woman named Hannah who really wants to be a mom, who's desperate to be a mom. She's crying year after year to be a mom. And then she hears from the Lord through her priest, and he says, you are going to be a mom. And she goes home celebrating, believing even before she knows that she's pregnant. She trusts God, and she gives birth to a son. She names him Samuel. And she gives Samuel to the temple work and dedicates his entire life to God. And the priest who had promised Hannah, his name is Eli. And it turns out that Eli is not a great dad. And he has two sons that work for him in the temple. And these two sons have been taking advantage of the people they lead. And Eli is not intervening. He is not doing anything to stop them. And so God gives a prophecy through Samuel that says Eli is going to be removed. And in fact, he says all of them, him and his two sons, they'll die on the same day. And so then you kind of cut to this battle, this waging war between Israel and these other group of people called the Philistines. And David and Goliath is not the first time the Philistines and Israel wage war against each other in the book. Not even close. They actually have a huge battle at this battlefield and thousands of Israelites die. And they say, man, we're the people of God. How could we lose? And then they have an idea. 
They say, what if we bring out the Ark of the Covenant and bring that into war with us? In fact, the verse says, let's go get it. And that's important. They say, let's go get it and bring it to war with us. Because they think that it will save them. And so they bring the Ark of the Covenant out and they go back to battle with the Philistines and they lose even worse. Thousands and thousands of Israelites die and the Ark is captured. And when the Ark is captured, the sons of Eli also pass away and the news comes back to Eli the priest. The Ark has been captured and in that moment he falls over and he dies. And his son's daughter gives birth to his grandson and she names him Ichabod, which means... There is no God here anymore. She's got to be the worst kid's name ever. You don't meet a lot of Ichabods anymore, but you can put that in your baby book if you want, if you're looking for that I name, Ichabod. Just write it down. That's okay. Some of you guys are journaling. Ichabod. Ichabod's born. It's the worst birthday ever. The ark is gone. Oh, my goodness. It's, it's dismal. What are we going to do? And they take the ark, the Philistines do, and they put it in the temple of their God. And this was something you would do. Your your temple was like your trophy room for your God. They put it in the temple of their God. And their God was like this merman uh, Dagon. He was like half fish, half man, not mermaid, merman, Father. He was a merman. And they put the ark in front of him and they, they leave him. For the night, when they come back in the morning, Dagon is face down on the ground, this big statue of a God in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And so they ironically have to go pick up their God and stand him back up again. And they stand him back up again. And and that night, uh, they leave him alone again. And when they come back in the morning, Dagon has fallen over. And not only has he fallen over, but this time his hands and his head have fallen off in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And so Dagon is beheaded, which is in, in their times was like a defeat. If somebody took the head of your God, that was a very big deal. They captured your God. They took his head off. Well, Dagon's head falls off. He falls on his face before God before the Ark of the Covenant. And through miraculous means, God sends his own Ark back to the people of Israel. And it comes back to the people of Israel, and they go to Samuel, who's now the priest, and they say, "Uh, what do we have to do? What do we have to do? The Philistines have defeated us so badly. What do we have to do to earn God's favor again? And Samuel says, let's get rid of all these false gods. Let's rid our country of every god, every statue that is not the one true God. And so they do that. They destroy all these. Then he gathers all the people and he says, now let's have a sacrifice to the real God. Let's build an altar and sacrifice to the true God. And so they do that. And while they're doing it, their enemies, the Philistines, gather again for another battle. And this time when Israel lines up to fight them, they don't even have to engage. It says the Lord thunders and shakes the ground and the, the Philistines flee before Israel and God wins the battle without Israel having to do anything. And Samuel sets up this big stone. It's called an Ebenezer. He names it Ebenezer. It means this far, God has helped us. And he sets it up and says, let's put up this big rock. And this rock, this rock will remind us that God wins our battles for us. This is important. They say, let's never forget. Let's put up a monument that God wins our battles for us. It's God that wins. It's not the thing. It's God that wins. And then a few years go by And Israel gets frustrated as a people, and they say, we want to have a king just like the other nations. And they say, they want a king, get this, they say, we want a king who will fight our battles for us. That's what they say, we want a king who will fight our battles for us. Even though they've got this monument that says, remember, God fights our battles for us, they say, no, 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 we want a human. We want a person. I want somebody we can touch and and admire. I want somebody who can fight for me. 
And so God says to Samuel, they're not rejecting you, Samuel, their leader. they're rejecting me, their God. And he gives them the desire of their heart in a man named Saul. And Saul is the tallest and the strongest person. And they give, he gives them Saul because they want a person to fight their battles for them. And then that brings you to 1 Samuel 17. And in 1 Samuel 17, the Philistines come back to battle Israel. And they say, we're not all going to fight you, just one of us is. Just send out one warrior to fight our greatest warrior. And whoever wins gets everything. Now you would think this is perfect for Israel. All they've wanted is one guy who's going to fight their battles for them. That's why they got Saul. He's their biggest and their strongest. You would think Saul would be the natural choice. He's one of the only ones with armor. He's the only one with a sword. Let him go out and fight the giant. But he doesn't fight Goliath, this giant Philistine. Instead, it says Israel trembles until a shepherd boy who's visiting his brothers who happen to be in the army shows up and says, I'm willing to fight. And Saul, looking at a shepherd boy named David who was, as the Bible calls him, ruddy and handsome, which no one has ever described me as ruddy and handsome, but I want to put it on my Father's Day card list this year. Thank you. Not from you, from my wife. Looks at David and says, why would I let you fight Goliath? There's a lot at stake. Why would I let you fight Goliath? And that brings us to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And I want to read verse 34 and a couple following. This is why David says he should be allowed to fight Goliath. David says to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there was a lion or a bear and they took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and I struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and I struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them for he has defied the armies of the living God. I love that. This is his resume. Hey, um, why should I let you fight a giant? And he goes, well... Let me tell you a little story. When a lion or a bear comes and takes a little sheep, I grab the lion or the bear by the beard and I hit it on the head until it's dead. And I think I can do the same thing to the giant. And I love Saul's response. David says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of this lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul says, go, and the Lord be with you. It's awesome. Go, the Lord be with you. David basically says, I'm an incredible shepherd. I'm a great shepherd, and that has qualified me for this moment because I've built so much confidence that God can deliver me from anything. And so if God can deliver me from a lion and a bear, then certainly he can deliver me from the giant. Now, reading that, that may not be shocking to you, but what David just said is when he has a bunch of sheep and one sheep gets taken by a bear, he goes and rescues it. And that should alarm you, that should astound you. I mean... Imagine if you're in charge of a hundred sheep and somebody takes one of them and that somebody happens to be a lion or a bear, do you know what the appropriate response should be? That's a bummer. Like you should be able to go back to your mom or your dad and say, one of my sheep got taken today. Oh, how? It was a lion or a bear. Okay, understandable. David doesn't do that. He chases it and then he says, after I rescue it. Now, That should read, after I rescue it, me and the sheep run. It doesn't read that. It says, after I rescue it, if the bear or the lion come at me, I grab the bear or the lion and I strike it until it's dead. 
And that's David. That's the king God has chosen. That's a man after God's own heart. That is not, we little David, what are we going to do? This is brave, good shepherd David who does not attribute his victories to himself, but rather to who? To God. He said, God delivered me and he will deliver me. That's David's heart. That's leaning into the lesson that God's been teaching these people the whole time, but it's also this really cool picture that we who are Christians get to see here. Because we know that in John chapter 10, when Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, he doesn't just mean, I'm a good shepherd, I'm really cuddly. He doesn't just mean, I'm a good shepherd, I like just, you know, hanging out and grazing Now, when Jesus says in John chapter 10, I'm the good shepherd, he says, because a hired hand, when the the wolf comes, the hired hand runs away, but I'm the good shepherd, I will not run away. And when Jesus says he's the good shepherd, he's describing the same kind of man that we see in David, which is a good king who is protective and self-sacrificial, who's willing to say, not only will I rescue, but I will take upon myself the problem you're facing. And I will take it upon myself and I will defeat it. That's what we see in John chapter 10 in Christ. That's what we see in David. In fact, David wrote a very famous psalm where he said, The Lord is my shepherd. David's a shepherd, a very good one, who defeats the lion and the bear. And he says, but who's David's shepherd? God. Who defeats things? Who protects him? God does. So what is the lesson? What is the lesson that God is teaching Israel over and over and over again? It has something to do with the Ark of the Covenant. It has something to do with Saul. This is the way we'll say it today. What God is teaching Israel is that there is no king and no thing that can save them. There's no person that you can rely on who will always protect you. And there is no thing that you can have that will always protect you. If we were to bring it to today, we might say, I don't care how much you have in your bank account. It can't save you. I don't care how many square feet you own in your home. It can't save you. I don't care how strong your mom or your dad is or how strong your spouse is or how tight you are with your roommates. No matter how many friends you have or how many likes you get on social media, those things cannot save you. There's no thing and no king that can save you but one alone, that is our God. And our God is a protective God. When he describes himself as the good shepherd, he makes a comparison between himself and the hired hand. If we were to bring it to today specifically, we might say something more like this. There's a difference between a mom and a babysitter. A babysitter is great, and a good babysitter is worth her weight in gold. Y'all know that? I love the women that have come and hung out with our boys and have led them and invested in them spiritually and spent time with them. Man, I so appreciate them. But there's a difference between a babysitter and a mom. God says the hired hand shepherd, when something really bad happens, they're not thinking about the sheep the same way God our shepherd is. Similarly, the babysitter and the mom. The mom is going to sacrifice herself on behalf of those kids. The babysitter is the hired hand. She shouldn't have to be responsible the way the mom is. Do you know that in the Bible, God compares himself to a mama bear? Do you know this? I said it to Robert this week. I said, uh, Robert, do you know that there's a verse where God says, I will come at them like a mama bear without her cubs? And he goes, oh yeah, Hosea. And I was like, what? Who knows that? 
Who has this ready? Oh, yeah, Hosea, the mama bear verse, that famous mama bear verse in Hosea where God says, I'm like a protective. Like that's the idea. It's like you come between a bear and her cubs, and that bear is going to go bananas. God says, yeah, that's like me, like a protective mama bear. And who, who does God protect? I mean, isn't that the story of Israel and, and David and Goliath? It's not that David was so great. It's that God was so great. It's not that the Ark of the Covenant could save them or that Saul could save them. It's that God could deliver and God could save them. And so that's the story that we get to lean into is that we have a protective God. Now, if you look at me, you may have noticed I'm pasty white, okay? It's my complexion. I can't help it. This is the skin I was born with. I also, you may not have noticed, I'm bald, Okay, so the season that we are entering into where the sun is out all the time and y'all want to hang out, it, it does terrible things to my scalp, okay? I can burn within about one minute. That's just the way I was born. So I, if I'm outside, at Kyle Atkins, you too, it's okay, right? We're, we're partners in this. If we're outside, I need to wear sunblock or I will be permanently scarred. You know, I, maybe not permanently, but it will hurt the next day. And so sunblock is something that my body requires in the summer. And I don't like sunblock, so I'd rather be in the shade if we're being honest. But sunblock is something that protects and guards. Sometimes in Christianity, though, we, we're like the person who applied sunblock once a while ago. And even though everybody around them is saying, Adam, you're turning red. Or your skin, you look like a lobster. We just reply and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I put it on a while ago. I think I'm good. Or we're like the person who reads the instructions and goes, yeah, that's the way sunblock works, but doesn't ever apply it. Because while we would say we have a protective God, he's given you instructions that protect you from folly and from lies and from mistakes. He's given you instructions. He said, this is how you do it. And if we say, I understand that, I applied that to my life a while ago, but we don't apply right now, what good is it? What good is it if we say, yeah, I've got God, but God is for later? I've got God. God was for conversion, but he's not for every day. Then what good is it? Then is it any wonder that when we cry out and say, God, why aren't you protecting me? Why aren't you doing something? When he says, are you kidding me? I've given you all these instructions to protect you from folly and lies and harm. And you would say, yeah, I I applied that a while ago. Why am I suffering today? See, people in the church, we love to say how God will protect you from harm. And it's true, there are many promises in the Bible where he says, I will protect you, I will guard you. And he does, he protects us from things like folly. This Bible is full of wisdom. It protects you from making foolish decisions. And one of the most common questions I get from our people is, what should I do here? And they'll present a couple options. And if we can say there's an option that honors the Lord and one that doesn't, it's really easy to say, okay, we're going to avoid folly. We're going to honor the Lord with this decision. The Lord protects you from lies. There are so many versions of what is true in this world, and the Lord protects you from those that are not. You see, we live in a city that will even teach false versions of this gospel that would say that your earthly rewards are based on your earthly behavior and that God rewards you financially and fiscally and relationally based on how good you are. There are churches that that is the base of what they're teaching. We would say, no, the Bible protects us from that lie. That is not the case. That is not who our God is. And God protects us from temptation. He tells us what is true and not true about the things that we desire and whether they are good for us or not. 
God protects us from those things. God protects us from religious, cultural lies. He also protects us from ourselves. That if you're one of those people who struggles with self-harassment, that when you look in the mirror, you can't help but insult yourself or be disappointed in yourself. That the Lord, who's the only other person who knows what you're saying, might protect you and intervene by declaring you beautiful and a delight in his child. That if you believe what he said, he protects you. But then the next logical question is then why do we suffer? Why is there harm? And I should say also, like the Lord protects you by giving you people in your life to protect you. He's given you, if you're at Eastside, maybe it's a home group leader or maybe it's a home group member. Certainly it's your, your staff, your elders, your deacons, your pastors. My role to protect is one of my favorite roles. One of the things I love to do is when, 